Our scene opens in Dr. Stuart Scrooge's office in Jodrellbank Centre for Astrophysics in oldie Manchester Towney. Huddled over a desk, microphone in hand, is the crouched figure of Bob Rattenbury, his frame cracked and broken. Come along, Rattenbury. I need ten interviews and this set of questions asked to an astronomer before the day is out. But, sir, it's Christmas Eve and I was wondering if I could... Go home. Christmas? Home? Bah, humbug. I was hoping I could get home early today because the family is putting up all the Christmas decorations Decorations? Decorations, he says. Pah! Go now and I'll dock your wages. There'll be no reading of feedback for you. But, sir... No, you must learn what it is like to be an employee of the Jodcast. We require dedication, respect and an unflinching loyalty to producing the best quality astronomy podcasting on the planet. Yes, sir. And so the sorry tale continued. When Bob Rattenbury got home later that night, the decorations were up and his family all in bed. Stuart Scrooge, however, was not going to have a quiet night. Dr. Scrooge. Dr. Scrooge. Who's there? If you're here to clean this room, I told you. It's my office and I'll clean it when I want to. Dr. Scrooge, I am the ghost of astronomy past. What, back in the days of Galileo, Ptolemy and Copernicus? Frauds, the lot of them. Not that far back, Dr. Scrooge. You don't realise what you're missing out on. Do you remember long ago, you went on an audio tour around Joggle Bank, or when the intros and outros were halfway sensible? Gosh, yes. That was back in the day when my old business partner, David Alt, was still a scientist. You must change your ways, Dr. Scrooge. You must see what you're doing to Rattenbury. For this, you will meet someone else. What, the ghost of astronomy now? Shh, copyright. Sorry. Be warned, Dr. Scrooge. Be warned. What an eccentric performance. Dr. Scrooge, I am the ghost of Jogcast Present. And what have you to show me, Phantom? Behold, the home of Bob Rattenbury. All right, all right, everybody. I'm sorry, but I could only get a pigeon for Christmas lunch this year. Hopefully my grant check from the University of Manchester will come through. And then we might be able to afford a Christmas pudding. That's all they have, a pigeon. You see what you do to them? Yes, and I should send them to Trafalgar Square, where they could eat for a year like kings. It seems you need to be shown more. Behold, the MP3 player of knowledge. The Judcast. The only CDs we've sent in the post are the best of Judcast 2006. With Megan Argo, David Alt, Stuart Lowe, Ian Morrison and Nick Rattenbury. The Judcast. December issue. Hello and welcome to the December issue of the Jodcast. Yes, we're right at the end of the year now, just about to celebrate our second anniversary next month. Yes, we have another extra show to go, but apart from that, we'll be two years old. Which is quite scary, really, but there we go. It is. We've been doing this for two years and our sound quality is still only a little better. We're still recording in the back of a van, but <laughs> never mind. And as we mentioned on the November Extra issue, this is our Cassini special. So we've got two interviews for you 
about the subject of Cassini-Huygens mission to Saturn. We've got an interview with Professor Carl Murray of Queen Mary University of London and with Leonid Gervitz from Jive about using the VLBI to recover data from the Huygens lander. And of course we have your feedback and the night sky with Ian Morrison. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month, Hubble takes a close look at Comet Holmes, evidence of rocky planet formation in the Pleiades cluster, and the UK's intention to pull out of the Gemini project. Comet Holmes, which brightened suddenly at the end of October, has been imaged by the Hubble Space Telescope. The comet, which brightened by a factor of almost a million within 24 hours, has been monitored by numerous observers since its mysterious outburst on the 23rd of October. Throughout November, the comet developed with an expanding coma which grew to appear larger than the full moon on the sky and became physically larger in actual size than the diameter of the Sun. Hubble observed the comet on several days during November, looking in detail at the nucleus and the surrounding dust. What the images show are large outbursts of dust, but they do not resolve the nucleus due to the comet's distance. The telescope also observed Comet Holmes back in 1999. At this time, the comet had no dusty coma. Astronomers used the measured brightness of the unresolved nucleus in these images to estimate the diameter of the comet. What Hal Weaver of Johns Hopkins University and his team hope to do now is use the new images to make another estimate of the diameter of the comet and see how much of it was thrown off in the current outburst. In the early solar system, the young sun was surrounded by huge amounts of dust, which gradually accreted to form the planets familiar in the sky today. This dust was warm, absorbing light from the sun, and would have glowed quite brightly in the infrared part of the spectrum. Astronomers using infrared cameras on the Gemini North Telescope and the IRS, ISO and Spitzer Space Telescopes have discovered a huge amount of warm dust orbiting a young star very similar to our sun in the nearby Pleiades cluster. Also known as the Seven Sisters, the Pleiades is an open cluster of more than 1,400 stars at a distance of 400 light-years from the Earth in the constellation of Taurus. Because it is comparatively close, it is a well-studied cluster. The star the astronomers have found, known as HD 23514, is a mere 100 million years old and is surrounded by huge amounts of hot dust, which the astronomers, led by Joseph Rhee of UCLA, interpret as the visible results of collisions between protoplanets, thought to be similar to the collision that probably formed the Moon in the young solar system. In the early stages of planetary formation, small bits of dust collide and stick together, forming larger lumps, eventually becoming comets and asteroids. As these bodies collide, some gain material and grow into planets, while others are smashed to pieces and return hot dust to the mixture surrounding the star. These observations suggest that small rocky planets like the Earth and its near neighbours are forming around this star in the Pleiades, and the team suggests that rocky planets like ours, although difficult to spot with current techniques, might be fairly common in the universe. During November, the Science and Technology Facilities Council, the body which funds major physics and astronomy projects in the UK, announced its intention to withdraw from funding the Gemini Observatory. Comprising two 8-metre telescopes located in Hawaii and Chile, Gemini provides sensitive, high-resolution optical and infrared observations from two of the best sites on the planet for astronomy. The observatory was funded and built by a collaboration of seven countries, including the United States, Canada, Chile, Australia, Brazil and Argentina, in addition to the UK. Astronomers from any of these countries can apply for time on these telescopes, allocated in proportion to the amount of financial support provided. The UK, through the Science and Technology Facilities Council, currently pays an annual subscription of £4 million, almost a quarter of the entire Gemini budget. 
UK astronomers have reacted with dismay at the decision to pull out of the observatory. In a statement, the Science and Technology Facilities Council said, Our aim will be to achieve withdrawal in a way which minimises damage to our long-standing partnership and the impact on the observatory, its programme and the UK research community, while enabling us to reinvest the planned savings in a timely way. And finally, readers of the Minor Planet Electronic Circulars in early November were surprised to see the discovery of a new object predicted to pass within 6,000 kilometres of the Earth on November the 13th. The faint object, designated 2007 VN84 by the Minor Planet Centre, was spotted by several observatories allowing an orbit to be calculated. Shortly after the initial announcement was made, Dennis Denizenko, a reader of the circulars, noticed that the orbit was very close to that predicted for a known satellite. 2007 VN84 was actually the Rosetta spacecraft, scheduled to pass within 6,000 kilometres of the Earth on November the 13th. This is not the first time such an incident has occurred. In the past, the WMAP spacecraft has also been mistaken for an asteroid. Another object, 2007 VF189, was then discovered in a very similar orbit to Rosetta, making its closest approach to Earth six hours after Rosetta, at a distance of 250,000 kilometres. Further analysis of the orbit showed that this object was indeed an asteroid and not a man-made object. Rosetta is quite a small object, and yet it was detected by several observers around the world, highlighting just how good modern surveys are at spotting small objects on close approaches to the Earth. Well, thanks, Megan. And that's uh, quite an interesting piece of news about the Gemini funding. Yep, regular listeners will remember that we talked to Dr. Scott Fisher of Gemini back in July. And Mm -hmm. the Gemini Observatory is very exciting. There are two telescopes, one in Mauna Kea and one in Chile. So we really hope that they change their mind about that. But uh, moving on from that, we have had some feedback, as usual. And we've had emails and reviews on iTunes. So, uh, Stuart... What emails have we had? Um, we had an email from Andrew Hewson, who pointed out a broken RSS feed, so thanks, Andrew. And we also mm-hmm. had an email from Joe Jones, who, after your final words on the last Jodcast, <laughs> Dave, wanted to know if I really was a farmer, or which the answer I'm is, sorry. no, I'm not. <laughs> uh, sorry, Stuart. <laughs> <laughs> and we also had an email from Matt, who gave us some good suggestions for improving the sound. And talking about sound, in our survey... Sound quality was mentioned a few times um, for ways that we could improve the Jodcast. A few people wanted the Jodcast to be louder. Now, I've had an investigation of this because we can't actually make it any louder, but one thing I've discovered is that we can compress the audio um, so that it, it sounds louder to the human ear, even though the peak loudness doesn't actually change. Apparently, this is the same technique that they use on advertisements on the television to make the advertisements sound louder. So we're going we're gonna to try that out now that I've had um, some suggestions from Matt about how to actually go about doing that. And I've also had a look around for some plugins for Audacity, which is the free software that we use to edit the Jodcast. So we'll be trying that out. So if this Jodcast sounds better to you, if it sounds a bit louder, if you're travelling in a car, of which apparently 40% of our audience are travelling when they listen to us... Look out! <laughs> perhaps they could give us some feedback, tell us if this sounds better for you. Yes, and this is one of the things that came up actually on one of our iTunes reviews this month. Someone also listening in the car on long journeys often finds that the volume control has to be adjusted to compensate for sections that are too loud or too quiet. So, yep, we are doing our best to make sure that 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 is not the case. Thank you, Salford Heights, for that. And also thanks to Trilby and Evans Above for giving us five-star ratings, appreciating the great guests, and keeping you entertained and informed. 
So thank you very much. And if anyone else hasn't reviewed us on iTunes already, please do. We appreciate all your reviews on iTunes by giving us reviews on iTunes. That helps us get a, a little bit more publicity on iTunes um, and mm-hmm. move us slightly up the featured list. So we really do appreciate those reviews. And of course, the more people that listen and then the more exposure that we get in iTunes and the more people we can reach with the Judcast. So keep on giving us those reviews and hopefully we can reach a much wider audience. And remember, if you have any feedback, you can contact us via the website at www.jodcast.net and just click on the contact link. You can also send us a postcard. And one of the reasons why Nick isn't here today uh, to do this issue of the Jodcast is because there have been no postcards for a while. (laughs) He's feeling just a little bit left out. So if you if you are in a far off foreign country or indeed just in the wilds of Birmingham, uh, then please do send us a postcard and let us know you're listening. And talking about going to far-off places, we now move to our section of the show dealing with the NASA ESA mission Cassini-Huygens, which went to Saturn. Now, the first of these is an interview with Professor Carl Murray of Queen Mary University of London. And throughout this interview, he makes a reference to a lot of pictures from the Cassini mission. And you will find these on the show notes on the Jodcast website at www.jodcast.net. So if you have your computer next to you while you are listening to the Jodcast, do go along and look at the pictures themselves as the interview is going on. So thank you very much indeed for for joining us today and having a chat about uh, your work with Cassini. So tell us a little bit about the Cassini mission. Oh, gosh. Um, It was uh, started back in 1990. It was first proposed. And the, it's a joint mission between NASA, ESA, and the Italian Space Agency. And the idea is to send a, well, actually two spacecraft to Saturn. The Huygens probe, which is going to be built by the European Space Agency, attached to the Cassini probe, which will be built by NASA. Um, it was launched uh, just over 10 years ago, in October 1997. It took seven years to get to Saturn. And about six months after it was in orbit, the Huygens probe was released, parachuted through the atmosphere of Titan and landed safely on the surface of Titan, sending back data. And the Cassini mission, which is the Saturn orbiter, has continued in orbit ever since and has another seven months, eight months of its nominal mission to go. Mm. It's a remarkably long-lived mission, isn't it? I mean, it, uh, it, yeah, you need to be a remarkably long-lived scientist to participate <laughs> in it. It's a good point, though, isn't it? Because a lot of these people start their careers you know, planning and designing a mission which isn't going to fly for 20 years, well, even, well, if, even if it gets funded. So well, exactly. I mean, you know, even colleagues, um, UK colleagues, have actually died and, you know, since they, they were selected, um, you know, and, and it's, it's just one, it's one of the amazing things about the mission is that there are so many people involved in it. And you're seeing young scientists come through who were PhD students or even maybe still at high school when mm. when the mission started and are now sort of taking faculty positions and doing Cassini research. And and I think that will be the legacy of the mission will be for the next generation to, to take up where we left where we left off, carrying on the research. What happens when you've you've done all the background work, you've designed, you've built the experiment, you've designed and built the equipment that's going to be launched, in this case the Cassini and Huygens probe. It launches and then you look at your watch and think, oh, seven years to go, time for a cup of tea. What do you do? What do you do for seven years? Well, we actually, at at the time the the spacecraft was launched, we still did not have in place a a plan as to exactly the nature of the orbital tour. 
because there's so many options we could take. You know, um, we we knew we would have to fly by Titan because although it, it, it's not only an interesting target, it's also the means by which we change the orbit of the spacecraft. Mm. But it's how we change the orbit of the spacecraft. So. What we had within the, the, the mission was a, a diversity of views. So if you're, um, for example, a satellites person, you want to have lots of satellite flybys. If you're a rings person, you don't want to be in the equatorial plane. You want to be out of the equatorial plane so you can see the rings. Mm. Um, on the other hand, if you're an atmospheres person, you'd like to be in the equatorial plane so the rings don't get in the way of the planet. Mm. Um, and it's been, <laughs> it's been a continual process reconciling that and then planning the tour in general in terms of when we're up and when we're down from the ring plane and then in absolute specific detail down to the last second of what instrument's going to be primed, what other instruments riding along with it mm-hmm. and so on. Um, and that's for you know every second of a four-year mission. And that took some time. So by the time we got there, that was more or less in place. But it's a continual process of updating and tweaking. So that's where you spend the time, the, the, the flight time between launch and arrival at Saturn is fine-tuning the the, yeah. the, the, the aspects of the tour. In, in a way, we had like a dry run at, at Jupiter. We got the opportunity to do science at Jupiter, and we got some interesting observations, the Galilean satellites of Jupiter's atmosphere itself. And it was good for my, my colleagues who were involved in Galileo, um, which, of course, had that trouble with its high-gain antenna not opening properly. And they were in orbit around Jupiter but couldn't do the science that they wanted to do. So in a, in a way, we kind of made up for that and did, did a really good science flyby of the, the Jupiter system with Cassini. What was it, What's your job with the Cassini mission? What did you do? Well, I'm a member of the Cassini imaging team. Um, I'm one of three Europeans in, involved in, in the team. And it, it's what's called a facility instrument in that the project, in this case JPL, built the cameras for us. And what we had to do was design the the, um, the operation of the cameras. And my particular interest is in rings, so Saturn's a good place to go, mm-hmm. and dynamics and the interaction between rings and small satellites. And uh, that's that's kept me occupied for quite a while. Because that's a spectacular part of Saturn, obviously, is the, is the ring system. And as you say, it's the place to go if you're interested in the dynamics and the structure of, of Saturn's rings. What do we understand about Saturn's rings at the moment? We knew before we got there that, I mean, this goes back to the work of James Clark Maxwell. Everybody maybe has heard of Maxwell's equations, mm-hmm. electromagnetic theory and so on. Um, but he also, in, in his youth, produced a lovely essay on the, the nature of Saturn's rings. And he was able to prove mathematically that the rings couldn't be solid. They had to be composed of individual particles, like mini satellites. So the rings are composed, we know, even though we've never actually seen a ring particle, we know that they're composed of individual particles. And typical sizes are sort of centimetre, but you can have bigger, you've got sort of house-sized objects and a few mountains here and there, but mostly sort of centimetre size. Um, And we know the rings have structure. They're sort of broadly divided into the A, B, C and D rings, which are the main ring system, and there are a few other rings outside that. And we know that there are differences between those broad divisions of rings, but we didn't know much more about the whole system until Cassini got there. We we had a few hints from Voyager, and this is the difference between Cassini and Voyager. Voyager was a flyby mission, so we had two flybys of Saturn, 1980 and 1981, and you get you know a week or two flyby with lots of different targets, and you you get a chance to look at the rings and. The, the discovery from Voyager was that the rings appear to have an incredible amount of detailed structure. Mm. 
And that, of course, we can see in great detail with, with Cassini. And we can see it again and again because we're, we're in orbit. And again, the beauty of this mission is we can see things change. Right. We can go back and look at something again. You could never do that with Voyager. Maybe with Voyager 1, you'd see something and then program Voyager 2 to have another look. Mm-hmm. Um, and that actually happened with one of the rings, the F-ring, which is one of my particular interests. And then something happened to Voyager 2 while it was um, in the middle of all its activity. The scan platform actually sort of froze mm-hmm. and got jammed uh, possibly due to with crossing the ring plane, possibly due to so much activity. So we lost out when that happened with, with Voyager 2. And so we've been waiting to look at the F ring again um, until we got there with, with, with Cassini, which is tantalising glimpses from Voyager. You say that you know that um, Saturn's rings have a remarkable amount of structure. That's one of the results from the, the first Voyager mission going past it. What do you mean by extra structure? Or, or it's very, very structured. Well, we used to think... Saturn's rings were like, I would say, broad and unbland. You know, they used this the A, B, C, and um, this very faint D ring. But with Voyager, we saw that they all, all the individual rings just broke up into thousands upon thousands of little ringlets. Except they're not really separate rings. What you're looking at is a sort of like a like a continuum, and that the rings are um, have a very specific structure. It's certainly in the case of the A ring that's actually caused by the small moons that are orbiting just outside. Mm-hmm. And they create a sort of gravitational response in the rings at certain locations. And so a lot of the structure is actually what are called, it's, it's, it's actually a theory that comes from galactic dynamics, or bending waves, or spiral density waves and bending waves. And we see these in Saturn's rings because, in a sense, Saturn's rings are like a, if you like, like a miniature solar system or if you like, like a sort of miniature galaxy with a sort of central object and lots of small objects moving around. Mm-hmm. So um, the processes are kind of similar. What's the nomenclature? What's the naming convention? You've got the A, B. These are all very exotic names. What, what's well, the <laughs> – Oh, it, 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 it's got out of hand now because they, going outwards from Saturn, it's D, C, B, A, F, G, and E. Um, and then – so it was, I guess, it was in order of, of discovery. Yes. So it was A to, A to C. Then D was discovered as a very faint ring interior to C. Then the E ring was discovered, and that's that's turned out to be one of the most fascinating. But that's that was a very diffuse ring outside the main ring system, and the F and G are narrow rings just outside the main ring system, but interior to the E ring. So it's complicated. It's very complicated. Why so complicated? Why are there so many different rings? Why is there so much structure in Saturn's ring system? That's a good question. The the A-ring we think we, the A-ring we think we know, that the fine detail we, we think we know are due to these small moons. The B-ring is still kind of a mystery because you say, okay, there's there structure there. It looks like a structure in the A-ring, but on the other hand, the small moons don't have these, these gravitational effects in the B-ring at these what are called resonant locations. So we don't really know what's going on in the B-ring, and various sort of fluid dynamical models have been proposed to try and understand that. The C-ring, again, you start to see some of the structure. The C-ring and the A-ring are kind of similar in that respect. And uh, the D-ring is, is showing some bizarre things that are we think are due to impacts, um, relatively recent impacts. Mm-hmm. And there are very few actual gaps in the rings. Um, you may be talking about a dozen real gaps. But even that's a misnomer because actually in the gaps we find small rings right in the middle of the gap. Really? And it was thought, maybe because he hasn't had enough time to do this yet, but it was thought that these gaps would, um, these rings and these gaps would have little small satellites. 
and we've looked and we can't find them, with, with two exceptions. One is the anchor gap in the A-ring, and we knew from even before Cassini that there was a moon in there, and that was discovered in Voyager observations 10 years actually after the Voyager observations were taken. Mm. It was in the record wow. and it was, was found. And then one that Cassini has found is a moon Daphnis that's orbiting in the Keeler Gap, which is right near the very edge of the A-ring. And so it's we believe these two little moons have actually created the gaps for themselves. Mm. And in, certainly in the case of Pan in the Anchor Gap, there's a, there's a ring associated with it and, and various other features in the Anchor Gap. Um, nothing that we can really see in, in, the, in the Keeler Gap associated with Daphnis. But um, small moons kind of create their own little environment and can have rings associated with them. Right. So they do these moons clear out the space of yeah. the rings? Or? Um, I, I described it once like sort of juggernaut on a, on a motorway. If the juggernaut comes up the middle end of the motorway, you get out of the way and it mm. kind of scatters, scatters cars left and right, or at least you want to get out of the way. Um, and it, it literally is like that. There's, um, there's a, a gravitational sort of clearing zone on either side, really a region which is chaotic and the, the orbits no longer become nicely streamlined and you get, so you get collisions between them and so a, a region tends to get cleared and the bigger the, the moon, the, the bigger the gap that would be cleared. What about these gaps which don't seem to have a moon associated with them? That's that's still a mystery. Um, and the rings that even are in these gaps are mysterious as well in that they're eccentric. And you think, okay, well, I mean, what's wrong with that? Most most orbits and of things are eccentric. But you mean that they're, they're not perfectly circular? They're not perfectly circular. So, But the, the peculiar thing about that is, and we see this elsewhere in the solar system, the rings of Uranus is another, another example, that these eccentric rings have, have radial width, okay, so they might be only a few kilometers across. And the rate at which an eccentric ring would not just remain sort of stationary in space, it would actually rotate because the planet it's orbiting isn't perfectly spherical. Mm-hmm. And so you get this processional effect, it's called. But the inside of the ring should precess faster than the outside. But it doesn't. It precesses as if it was one ring right in the middle. And mm. so there's no differential precession that we can detect. And we know this from Uranus rings, and now we see it at Saturn as well. And it's kind of still a mystery. The, the obvious explanation is it's self-gravity. It's actually the, the mass exterior to the inner ring, inner part of the ring, is kind of pulling it back, and the mass interior to the external part of the ring is pulling it forward so that everything kind of rotates at the, the same rate. Um, and that would explain some things, but... It, it, it does appear that you have to have the, exactly the right distribution of mass for that to work. It's not like a random thing. So, how do these ring, where do these rings come from? You know, was there a moon there once, and if so, what happened to it? And if it's broken up, perhaps it produces this eccentric ring, which somehow arranges itself that it precesses mm-hmm. uniformly. There's lots of little problems like that. I suppose, though, if you if you think of the Saturn's ring system as being a whole bunch of particles which are just testing out the the local environment, if you like, around Saturn, including the gravity and its and these uh, uh, the effects of the moons, then perhaps it's quite quite reasonable to think that well, some of the moons will clear out gaps, and some particles in the rings will just go well. well if if you can't handle being a processing ring which processes in this particular way, then you know you you get ejected or or move to a point where you can. Does that seem fair enough? That, that? That, that's true. It's it's kind of like a natural selection, I think. Yeah, mm-hmm. that, that, that's that's actually the case. Um, and this is the thing that we have with Cassini. I mean, we've explained some of the things the Voyager saw, but then we're seeing other things that um, we'd never seen before, and we're trying to rack our brains to figure out what on earth is going on. And we figure at the back of it all, it's just like little Newtonian gravity. Um, mm-hmm. 
and we're just trying to figure out what the, the boundary conditions are that, that are applied at, at Saturn for these, these kind of strange things to work. How much better are the images on Cassini as opposed to the Voyagers? Okay, well, better in, in, in different senses. We Voyager had, um, had, first of all, didn't have CCD technology. So the, Vo- the Voyager images were, okay, they came back as digital, but they were essentially analog a device. But they were 800 by 800, and they were 8-bit images. Um, Cassini images are um, 1024 by 1024, and we operate a lot of the time in 8-bit, but we can take 12-bit images as well. Um, when you talk about 8-bit and 12-bit images, okay. you're talking about the range of... Yeah, it's, it's, it's like a grayscale. So 8-bit images means you've got a grayscale that goes from 0 to 255. So you've got gradations going from sort of um, you know white to black of that sort of level. With with 12-bit, you're going up to sort of 0 to 4,095. Mm-hmm. So the sort of dynamic range of the images, so if you've got a bright stuff and dark stuff, you can, as long as you set the exposure right, you can get everything in, in the one image and boost the dark material, sort of um, dark uh, part of the image on, 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 on your on your computer if you want to look at that. So, so, so in those sort of raw terms, we got we got a better camera system, a better CCD system. We've actually the optics hasn't changed much. In fact, the the wide angle camera we've got two cameras on Cassini, um, as as Voyager did. But the wide angle camera in Cassini is actually the same optical assembly that was used in Voyager. It's a spare from Voyager. So is that right? So good optics don't change, right? It's right. The, it's what goes at the end of the, <laughs> the telescope or the camera that, that changes. Uh, but we've also got a, a, a completely a really good color filter set. So, um, you know, we've got H-alpha filters for people looking for sort of lightning and Saturn's atmosphere. And um, we've got everything we want to do sort of color. And we've got some near-infrared um, mm-hmm. region that we can look at as well. So it's much better than, than Voyager, which had a very sort of small filter set. And basically the technology behind it is is, is, a, is a lot better. So these improvements have now started asking more uncomfortable questions about uh, Seton's ring system. Yeah, I mean, w- one of my specialities is, is the F ring, which is this. Voyager saw this bizarre twisted ring outside the, the main ring system, and we just got this little glimpse, and then we got another glimpse with with Voyager two, um, it was eight or nine months later, and it looked completely different. And mm. that was the first problem. Well, is it changing, or are we just looking at a different part of the ring? It was always a mystery, and. As I said, you know, Cassini tends to solve some mysteries and then devises its own ones. And what we've seen with the resolution we've got with and the time to go and look at the F-ring is the most bizarre system. And I've been sort of racking my brains trying to understand it. And we're we're, we're coming to grips with it. And we're realizing that we'd always assumed that it wasn't just the F-ring. And it, it has, we knew it had two shepherding moons, Prometheus and Pandora, that orbit either side. We could see those with Voyager. We can even see them from HST and some ground-based um, instruments. And we know that they gravitationally interact with, with the F-ring, and we can actually see that effect now, and we can understand that. But we always suspect that there was something else going on. And we've seen a few objects, a couple of ones we've catalogued. Um, but it's, it's so difficult because, I mean... If I had the spacecraft to myself, of course, we'd be looking at the F-ring all the time, but I'm sharing it as a sort of indicator with, with others, unfortunately. Um, so we, 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 um, we never get to do exactly what we want. So what happens is we get a little glimpse of the F-ring, and we see these little little moonlets or objects, let's call them, in the F-ring, and we get a little bit of information about their orbits. 
But then we don't go back and look at the airframe. In one case, we, we hadn't really good observations of the airframe for about 400 days because we were mm. in the equatorial plane. Then we go back and then we might see a completely different ring and we might see other objects and we don't know if they're the same objects or not or these new objects because the airframe has a, an ability, we believe, to sort of like produce. There's some Things go on, clumps appear in the airframe and we're not quite sure what they are. But we had a, a, an amazing observation that came in last December where we saw what appeared to be some collisional event in the airframe. And our prime suspect for the the object that's responsible is a, is a little guy that we found back in um, 2004, um, called S2004, S6, that we think is actually every so often goes through a series of encounters with the airframe. And we're actually looking at the collisions. And so all the, the structure that we see in the multi-stranded structure of the airframe could actually be due to, you know, a few of these little guys that are actually colliding with it and then the airframe evolving uh, with all of the debris that's around it. And so we, we've, we've got those kind of observations. We're also seeing the effects of small moons. It is wonderful that the, the debris that's produced by these collisions gives us little tracers right. as to the location of other moons because now we can see the gra- their gravitational effect on this trace material. Mm-hmm. And that's... Uh, that's a little bonus because we're seeing kind of dynamical phenomena that we kind of should have realized would be there, but it's, it's we've seen it in the F-ring, and then we can see it in simulations. Which, ah, we know what we're looking at. This F-ring, though, I've seen images of it. It's remarkable that it looks, it is twisted, and twisted in the sense of uh, like a strand of, of cotton, several strands of cotton all twisted together. Well, is it? <laughs> well, is it? Okay. Well, t- t- um, how is, how is, why, what is the twistedness of the F-ring? When we saw it with Voyager, we developed a theory that it was multi-stranded. We, it looked like it had parallel strands, okay? And it, it, it's, it's like the old thing with the elephant, you know, where you examine, if you're blindfolded and you examine the, the, an elephant or you, and you hold on to the, to the trunk or the tail or one of its legs, you, you're seeing a different thing, but it's just one beast. Mm-hmm. So if you've got a really small view of the F-ring, a narrow view they get with Voyager, you might consider that these strands are parallel. So it's like an eccentric ring, it is precessing uniformly like those other little rings, um, but it has this multi-stranded structure. Okay, But what we saw with, with Cassini and realized is that these strands are actually, some of them are spirals, right? And if you think about a sort of tightly wound spiral that goes around two or three times, if you look at it some places, you'll see you know, one, two strands and other places, you know, maybe more. Mm-hmm. And it because it, this, the, the thing evolves, and keeps wrapping around, um, you'll, you, it'll change with time. So if you looked at the same part, or at least the same direction of, of the of the F-ring, you might see the thing become multi-stranded, or appear to be multi-stranded, yeah. and then it'll, this multi-strandedness, exactly. its word, goes away. Exactly. And now we, what we're doing is developing a theory for that that can explain it, and, and ties in. We, we were lucky that the, the observations where we saw this, this collision in, in December were the start of a whole sequence of stairs at the F-ring that lasted right through till May. And we're, we're just preparing the results of those for, for publication. And so we, we're seeing some really interesting phenomena. And, and one of the theories for the spirals was that it was due to, to a collision and possibly with this, this, this little guy, S2004, S6. Um, and that appears to, to be the case. Um, and that would produce like what, what would look like a sort of radial jet, which would then start to shear because of, of Kepler's third law, because it, it, would, it would move according to where it was relative to Saturn. And uh, the further 
further away it was, the slower it would move. So anything that was radial was, would shear. And so you can imagine that then starting to form a spiral. Given enough time, mm. that material just spirals out. And, of course, isn't it wouldn't just be one jet. There'd be another jet. Uh, after every time you got a collision, there'd be another jet forming and another jet. And then because of the, the way S 2004S6 interacts with Saturn and the F-ring, you, it might suddenly cease because their orbits no longer intersect. And then maybe a few years later, they start intersecting again. And that seems to be the case because the F-ring we saw, and this is the beauty of the mission, of course, the F-ring we saw in 2004 is, looks like the F-ring we're seeing in, in 2006, 2007, but not like the F-ring we saw in between. And so these are, it is the most dynamic and, and obviously violent place to be because <laughs> these things are colliding with velocities of you know, tens of metres per second. So. What are these objects that are colliding? These are small moonlets. Well, the assumption is they're, they're, they're moonlets, that they're moons themselves. But originally we thought um, maybe because the F-ring produces so many different things, these could be just dust balls that you've got some, you know, some collection of dust that to all intents and purposes looks like a moon. And, and they were sort of hazy looking and they did seem to have tails and so on on stage. So we had no way of knowing whether there was real mass there until these events started happening. And a dust ball can't produce the sort of phenomena that we're, that we're seeing in the F-ring. So these are real mass, although you've got to question what the long-term future of this thing is, you know, if it's continually colliding with the F-ring. Mm, mm. These, these could well be transient events. You may not ever see an F-ring or something that looks like an F-ring again if there weren't additional collisions. Well, that's right. And you have to say, well, okay, the, these are probably... Um, I think this is true. These are probably just the bigger objects that are in there in the ring. We think there are smaller objects, and we think we can see their gravitational signature as well. So there's a whole spectrum of objects in the F ring. Um, and then you've got a question: the fact, well, you know, why is this ring so unusual? Because um, all the other rings are so well behaved, and 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 I think it's it has to be because it's young. Hmm. We're looking at a, a a ring that has still. It's still in it. It's in a sort of juvenile phase. It's like um, the sort of the, the, the Kevin of uh, of rings. It's still <laughs> it's still not doing what it's supposed to do. Um, it's sort of like you know, sort of a teenager, perhaps, <laughs> and it, it's still young. So it hasn't really sorted itself out yet. But it's in the process of doing that. So presumably, what well, one possibility is that it would will settle down and it will become like a normal ring exactly. if, if there is such a thing. And it, the beauty of this is. You know, we're seeing processes that we never dreamt we, we would ever get to see. And the beauty of it is that these processes happen on a much larger scale in the early formation of the solar system or any planetary system. Mm. When you've got a, a system of protoplanets and the sort of disk out of which they formed and they're interacting with it. So we're seeing all these processes in orbit around Saturn, but it's just sort of like a, a miniature version of a forming protoplanetary disk. And so the more we can understand, you know, with Cassini, these processes, the more we can apply them to our own origin of our own solar system and other solar systems. So there's a direct link between what we're seeing in the, the, with the evolution of, of Saturn's disk system mm. is currently going on at the moment. It's only possible with a, a mission that can give us that time-resolved um, yep. information, basically. It's not just whoosh, there goes Voyager past Saturn and click, click, oh, we're off again. It's actually sitting there watching this occurring in real time, so to speak. Because that's, uh, that's a big question, isn't it, about how did our solar system form? How do you go from yeah. the dust, the small mo- small particles in um, the protoplanetary disk, which is similar, I suppose, to the Saturn's ring system to yeah. things like but you and me. <laughs> yeah, but it's a, I mean, the beauty of it is it's, 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 it's like a sort of, 
a physical experiment. You know, how would you test an hypothesis? You set up an experiment. Well, nature has set up the experiment for us. This is the only disk that we can get to Mm, and look at in detail. And everything else we're relying essentially on the electromagnetic radiation from them, you know, the the light from other disks, you know, much more violent astrophysical disks. But this is one and okay, it's it's um, it's not a direct analog in the sense that the, the boundary conditions, the, the velocities and so on are, are all different, but it's the same physical laws that are applying, and we can see the same phenomena. I mean, for example, we, we've seen in the A-ring um, these, these features called propellers, which tell us that there are these 100-metre moons, and they we're not seeing the moons themselves because we don't have the resolution, but we're seeing their gravitational effect on the nearby material, and they produce this slightly offset um, linear features, but two features, but each slightly offset, which given this propeller thing. And what do these propellers look like? Well, they're just they look like sort of just little lines, two lines. They come in pairs mm-hmm. with a sort of possible you know, gap between them, but the the lines are, are parallel, but they're not aligned with each other. You know what I mean? So there's a slight so offset. So is, is, is this are these lines pointing away from the center of set? Oh no, they're pointing in the direction of motion around. Right. Okay. So. So this this is because you've got an embedded satellite and material on the inside is moving faster. Um, it's catching it up and then it gets perturbed as it moves past. And similarly, material on the outside is moving slower. So it gets encountered by the satellite, um, the small moon. And so you get on the inside going ahead, you get perturbed material on the outside behind, you get perturbed material. So you get this slight offset. And we've seen this, we've seen it operating with Daphnis in the, in the Keeler gap and how it affects the, the, the ring edges on either side. But these are small embedded moons in the A-ring. And when I saw these with Cassini, I, I recognized immediately um, the phenomenon because I'd seen it in my, my, my colleague down the, down the corridor who does planetary formation studies. Mm-hmm. And he has protoplanets in a disk. And you could see the same phenomenon on an entirely different scale, but exactly the same phenomenon. So what are the chances, do you think, of actually, well, I don't know, learning from Saturn's ring structure, just the mechanism by which we form planets? How would we do it? Would we need to send another mission with even better resolution, or would we need to stay there for 10, 15 years and watch very closely what's going on? What would, you, what would we need to well, do? Well, well, let's not give up on Cassini first, because we, we've, got, we've got till the end of June 2008 for the nominal mission, and then we're hopeful that there's going to be an extended mission for at least two years, and maybe even an extended mission beyond that. Okay, And plans are already afoot. ESA's chosen uh, missions for further study, um, which include uh, a Saturn mission, which we have a Titan lander and an Enceladus probe as, as mm. well, because Enceladus is this bizarre moon that's sort of spewing out ice, which forms the E-ring, this, this diffuse ring. Mm. So um, undoubtedly there will be further missions to to the Saturn system, that's definitely going to happen. What's the uh, limiting factor on Cassini's lifetime? Um, the real limiting factor is the amount of fuel it's got. It, it, I mean, Newton's law says it'll just keep going as long as it's in, in orbit. It doesn't doesn't need to keep firing its engines. But we use the, the, the fuel to make small course corrections so that we can hit the, the aim point um, as we go past Titan exactly so to get into the right orbit and so on. Um, and when that runs out, that means we can no longer control the spacecraft in terms of orientating the spacecraft and uh, making changing its orbit and so on. We're, we're totally at the mercy of the, the gravity field of the planet and, and the moons. Um, so with judicious use of that fuel, we can make this mission last quite a few years yet. But 
you know, um, it also depends on on the the willpower and the funding of the agencies to say this is a worthwhile mission, and that that needs that needs to go ahead. And but I'm sure they'll they'll see sense. <laughs> so these results about the F ring are being published soon. Um, written as 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 we speak. <laughs> um, the it sounds strange, but literally my ideas and I, my my colleagues at Queen Mary are our ideas about these things change on an almost daily basis because i mean imagine it, you're looking at something that nobody's ever seen before in any other context and you're just racking your brain trying to say what what am i looking at and you know what tests can i do like any scientist what tests can i do to sort of prove my theory is, is correct and we're seeing things all the time because we're concentrating on one area to let's say look at the jets and we think we can understand that but at the same time, if you look at even greater detail, you want to say, where are the small moons? We think we can see that, um, and we think we know where they are. So it's like, a, I described it as like a dark matter problem. We've got mm-hmm. a little dark matter problem at Saturn. You know, where are these moons that we know are causing this, these effects on the F-ring, but, but where are they? Yeah. Um, so it's a lot to think about, and our ideas are changing, and it's, it's nice to share them with, with colleagues and uh at meetings, and but it's coming to fruition with, with the offering. I mean, I can see it keeping me occupied until my retirement, and if, in, you know, a few years away yet. But um, and that would be a great thing because I think it's still full of surprises, and it is certainly, as regards the mission, one of the sort of prime goals for for ring science anyway. Because it, it's a it's a ring. Every time you look at it, you're guaranteed to to, to see something of interest, mm. and you can't say that about many rings. Well, we wish you all the very best for the research and we look forward to the conclusions. Thank you. Thank you very much. Brilliant stuff there. Thanks, Nick. Uh, I now know how to name all of those rings around Saturn, which is something I've never been able to do. But as I said before, if you are next to your computer, then please do go to the Jodcast website and look at those pictures from the Cassini mission that Professor Carl Murray was talking about. And also... On the show notes for this episode, we've included images from ESA's Huygens probe, which was carried to Saturn by Cassini and actually landed on Saturn's largest moon, Titan. Now, the probe had lots of scientific instruments which were measuring various properties of Titan's atmosphere and also some instruments which were to measure the impact and to work out the composition of the surface once it had landed. The data from those instruments was sent from Huygens to Cassini on two channels, channel A and B, with some data being sent on one channel and some data being sent on the other. Unfortunately, because of an error, Cassini never actually listened to channel A. So all the information, which included about 350 pictures or so, and what was called the Doppler radio measurements, were lost. Now luckily, the international community of radio astronomers were also observing Huygens' descent using a host of radio telescopes on the Earth. And because they have very accurate positional information in those observations, they were able to recover the position in time of Huygens as it descended through the atmosphere. Now, back at the beginning of October, Nick and I caught up with Dr. Leonid Gervitz of the Joint Institute for VLBI in Europe, that's JIVE, to find out more about those observations. We were invited to conduct uh, a VLBI observation for Huygens. Of course, before it uh, it had become known that something is wrong, uh, the uh, failure of um, of one of radio channels between Huygens and Cassini became known only uh, as it happened during the descent of Huygens in the atmosphere of Titan. Well, we began our preparation long before that, well, a few years before that. Um, but of course our role 
um, has changed dramatically once people at the control center have realized that something is wrong uh, up there. Then we were uh, immediately uh, elevated in our position in the mission hierarchy because only radio astronomers were in the position to save in an important part of the science suit of Huygens. Hmm. Uh, we believe that it was the first VLBI observation in which we operated practically at the quantum limit of detection, not even thermal, but quantum limit. So by quantum, you meaning picking uh, up individual counted, photons? Exactly, we counted photons, uh, and our estimate was that our 25-meter class telescope, VLBA, Monacare, received something like 20 quants per second for the entire telescope and still we were able to see interferometric fringes on baseline between this telescope and much larger telescope in Green Bank. That's essentially 28 photons per second. 20 photons per second per one telescope and then 600 photons at the Green Bank telescope but the point is that we we have to have fringes Mm. to achieve uh, VLBI resolution and yes it uh, turned to be possible. There were several key um, components in the success of this experiment. First of all uh, we used heavily well-known to people at Maryland of course community phase referencing technique. It was a little bit difficult in this case because Titan happened to be where the Keplerian law required, not uh, uh, not the existence or convenience for phase referencing. So all the sources in the background around Titan on the uh, time of the mission were very weak. The strongest one was about 45 millijansky. In normal VLBI life, these kind of sources are sources of uh, target sources, not reference sources. But in our case, we had to use this weak source as reference. By the way, Merlin and Jordan Bank uh, facilities did not participate in Huygens observations as such, but they played an important role because uh, we used Merlin to image the field around position of Titan. Uh, we now call this Huygens field. And Merlin was key element of preparatory work we picked up several potential reference sources using Merlin, as well as other facilities, Westerbork, VLA, EVN, and others. So why was this required to use VLBI to, to pick up the signal from Huygens? Well, was there not already something set up by NASA and ESA? Uh, strangely enough, uh, VLBI was not considered as a mission element, as mission facility uh, uh, at the beginning of the mission. Um, it has to be said that Huygens project was a very difficult and uh, and long-living project. It was proposed in 1982. It was accepted by ESA around 1990. It was uh, under extensive development from 1990 to 97. The launch was in 1997, and Huygens reached its destination, Titan, only in 2004, uh, July 4, 2004. So, uh, you see, this is more than 20 years, uh, and, of course, in in the beginning of this mission, nobody could dream about uh, picking up with VLBI uh, network so weak signals as we did. And for us, the key element was, of course, phase referencing, as well as ability to use a novel model of VLBI delay, which is called now VLBI theoretical delay model. It's a software 
which allows us to predict what is delay on specific baselines for specific source within solar system. This is a key point, because when you deal with a source um, so close as planetary target, you have to keep in mind that um, photons arrive along non-parallel uh, ways to your telescopes. You have to account for near-field effects. It sounds simple uh, when you pronounce this in the words, but when you put it in formulas, you see that it's not that simple because you have to account for uh, very fine-tuning effects like general relativity effects and gravitational and propagation impacts and different media, etc., uh, but we have now this software. It did work for Huygens. We checked this for much closer target. Uh, a year ago, we observed using kind of piggyback of Huygens developments for observing of the first European lunar mission, SMART-1. Uh, it was interesting exercise in in a different way. Um, the signal was very strong, I would say deadly strong, because it happened, uh, the transmitter happened to be at the distance of just one light second, roughly, mm -hmm. on Moon, um, as opposed to Huygens, which was eight astronomical units, that is 67 light minutes away. But for SMART, we exercised some special uh, effects which are visible when you have a very strong signal, that is, diffraction of a signal from spacecraft when spacecraft is behind moon. So we observe, we, we observe kind of occultation of spacecraft or its transmitter um, and um, for several seconds when the spacecraft is close to limb but behind moon you can see clear diffraction pattern. That's a very interesting exercise. Uh, to the best of my knowledge never uh, seen before mm -hmm. And the uh, diffractional pattern which we see is, well, it looks almost like a, a textbook on physical optics or, or optical physics, whatever you call it. Um, yeah, we believe that this um, kind of phenomenon can be used in the future for future missions because the diffraction pattern you see tells a lot about the three-dimensional uh, distribution uh, close to the limb of the source. In other words, you can use this technique for high-precision cartography of the uh, screening uh, body. So perhaps it would be fair to say that the diffraction pattern that you see isn't exactly due to a, a, a flat surface or a, a spherical oh, yeah, surface of the limb, definitely. but you might see some differences which would allow you to you know, infer the structure of, exactly. of, of the limb. Exactly. This technique is, uh, is known, it's been used in optics for some time, uh, in fact, the quasars were detected in, in optics or identified with radio sources using this kind of technique uh, back in 1963. Uh, this technique of uh, lunar occultation was very popular before uh, aperture synthesis and uh, long baseline interferometry came to age. But now we are on the new phase of the spiral of development. We came back to... Uh, lunar occultation technique with VLBI in hands. That's quite interesting. Could you do this uh, for uh, other solar system bodies other than the Moon? Could you do this for planets? Could you diffract uh, space probe radio signals around other planets? Limbs? Uh, in principle, yes. Uh, in practice, it will be much more difficult. 
we try to estimate what would it take to see similar thing, uh, say, on Mars. Uh, but the problem is that uh, Moon practically has no uh, <coughs> ionosphere, no magnetic field, and you don't deal with electromagnetic propagation phenomena. Well, on Mars it will be totally different. Mm. Uh, in, fir in the first instance, you will deal with propagation uh, uh, in, uh, in the ionosphere there. Not not as strong as some other bodies, but in principle it's doable. Another factor to remember is, of course, geometry. Moon as a, as a screen, as a diffractor, is very convenient. It's relatively close. Uh, for Mars, it's totally different thing. The size of the Fresnel uh, pattern will be not terribly convenient for observations. But yes, in principle, we will look into these uh, possibilities. Well, thank you very much for talking to us on the Jodcast. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thanks, Nick and Stuart, for that. And it's good to know you're having a good time there at the uh, Modern Radio Conference with your plates and your cups full of food and drink. <laughs> <laughs> All right for some. But, of course, um, if you are going outside to look at the night sky, it's getting quite cold, so suggest you take your thermos out with you and some cakes and things. And, of course, the other person that you would want to have with you while you're going out there, is Ian Morrison, and here he is to talk you through December's night sky. Hello, let's have a look at the night sky in December this year. I often think December is one of the best months in which to observe the heavens, because we have very long nights, of course. Soon after sunset, fairly high in the west, there's that lovely area of sky with the constellations of Cygnus, Lyra and Aquila. Those three bright stars, Deneb, Vega and Altair, making what's actually called the Summer Triangle, but it's actually visible uh, throughout most of the autumn months. Now, I won't go into that part of the sky in detail, as I've talked about that on some of the earlier podcasts, Jodcasts, and you can obviously pick those up if you want to learn more about that little bit of the sky. Uh, there's rather less obvious uh, constellations due south after dark, but we do have the constellation of the winged horse. And again, I've told you on previous Jodcasts how to find the nearest giant galaxy to us, which is the Andromeda galaxy, sort of a twin of our own Milky Way galaxy. So again, you could actually listen back and, and find out about that. But what we do now have is that if you're prepared to wait up just a few more hours, we have that other most beautiful part of the sky, perhaps the best part of all that we can see in the Northern Hemisphere, which includes the constellations of Taurus, Orion, Canis Major, and Gemini. In Taurus, we have two very nice star clusters. They're called open star clusters. You probably know that Taurus the bull has an eye. The eye is made by the star Aldebaran, a sort of an orange-red star. It actually lies about halfway between us and what is called the Hyades Cluster, sort of V-shaped cluster that actually makes up his head. But it's nothing to do with it. It's actually moving southwards, whereas the stars in the Hyades Cluster are moving eastwards. Up to the right of the Hyades Cluster is the beautiful little star cluster called the Pleiades Cluster sometimes called the Seven Sisters. Although, in fact, I've never managed to actually see seven. With my own eyes, on a reasonably dark night, I can see about five, and with binoculars, I can see quite a few more than seven. So quite where that came from, I'm not sure. Um, it's quite a young cluster. It's probably less than 110 uh, million years old. 
and all the stars are still blue stars, or the ones we see, they're blue giants. And in fact, that blue light is lighting up a dust cloud through which the cluster is passing. And photographs, and you can actually see one on the Jodrell Bank night sky uh, page this month, of the Pleiades, show some striations in the dust. The dust appears blue because the stars in the Pleiades are hot and blue, so there's a lot of blue light. But also, dust preferentially scatters the blue light rather than the red, in much the same way that the sky is blue and the sun seen near the horizon looks reddish, that that the blue light's been scattered out by the atmosphere between us and the sun through which the light has passed. The photographs actually show striations in the dust, and that actually tells us quite a bit. There's got to be something that can somehow have a sense of direction. We think that many little dust particles contain iron, and that, of course, means they're little micro-compasses. And, of course, you only get compasses to line up if you have a magnetic field. So this tells us there's a magnetic field there, out there, between the stars in the Milky Way galaxy. Down to the lower left of Taurus the Bull, we have Orion the Hunter. And with binoculars, you can easily see that below the three stars of Orion's belt, there's a rather nebulous region. That's the Orion Nebula, and it's a birthplace of stars. And with a small telescope, you can actually see a little group of stars called the trapezium at its heart. And their light is lighting up that region of dust and gas, and the ultraviolet light is exciting hydrogen gas to give off a lovely reddish-pink colour spectral line. We can't sadly see that with our eyes, but it shows up very well on photographs. If you follow the three stars of Orion's belt down to the left, you come to the brightest star we see in the Northern Hemisphere, which is, of course, Sirius. Because it's so low in the sky, and it's very bright, the scintillations caused by the atmosphere, the twinkling of stars, in fact, splits up the light from Sirius, often into colours, so it can appear to flash with different colours. And we quite often get people ringing Jodrell Bank up, saying, what is this flashing light that I've actually seen in the southern sky? Well, it, it, it's the star, Sirius. And up to the left of Orion, finally, we have the constellation of Gemini. I'll come back to Gemini a bit later on, because that's where this month we find Mars. Right, now let's uh, have a look at the planets we can see this month. Now, in fact, in November, it was possible around November the 8th to see all of the eight planets in the solar system. Remember that Pluto is no longer a planet, just a dwarf planet. This month, not quite as good. We've lost, first of all, Jupiter, which is now passing behind the sun. So that means we won't see it again for a few months, and then we'll see it in the pre-dawn sky. And also Mercury, in fact, is actually on, on the far side of uh, the sun as well so that is not visible this month either so what is left well first of all in the dawn or in the pre-dawn sky we can see saturn it's beginning to rise earlier now so it's visible in most of the hours of the early morning it's eight degrees down to the lower left of the star regulus in leo it's not quite as bright as we often expect to see it and that's because the rings which are tilted with respect to the plane of the solar system are in fact appearing to us less and less open and in fact in 2009 they will become invisible for a while so overall saturn isn't quite as bright as it usually is i've mentioned that mercury is no longer visible but of course mars is the planet to think about this month and it's a very good reason for buying yourself a a, a small telescope i'll come back to mars it's obviously one of the highlights 
of December, but also in, in, in January. Uh, Venus is absolutely dominating the morning sky. It, it has a magnitude of minus 4.2, so it's the brightest object in the sky, save for the moon. It's in the constellation of Virgo, so there aren't very many bright stars nearby. It's getting smaller as the month progresses, from 18 arc seconds to down to about 15 arc seconds. But as it does so, the illuminated part of Venus actually increases. It's like as the, the moon comes towards full moon, it actually appears brighter to us. And the effect of this increase in illumination actually cancels out the fact that the angular size of Venus is getting smaller. So for several months, the magnitude of Venus stays pretty much the same, at about minus four magnitudes. So that's something you can't fail to miss if you perhaps wake up at about six o'clock in the morning and look out into the eastern sky. So let's have a look at some of the highlights of December. Well, last month I said quite a bit about the comet 17p slash Holmes. It was visible to the unaided eye in the early part and most of, in fact, of November. But I looked at it the other night and I didn't really have to use binoculars to be sure it was there. That was partly because as the moon was coming towards full moon, the sky wasn't quite as dark as it had been. Uh, the best time to probably look for Comet Holmes is going to be around the 8th, 9th, 10th of December because that's when the moon is new and so if it's clear the skies will be their darkest. Towards the end of November it actually passed in front of the star Murfak, the brightest star of Perseus. It's now moving in an arc towards the second brightest star in Perseus which is called Algol. And all you need to do is to find Murfak, look up to the right and with binoculars you shouldn't fail to see it. The angular size now is about that of the moon, so it's actually quite a big object in the sky. But as its coma expands, so its surface brightness is falling, which is why we no longer see it just with our unaided eyes. How long it will still be visible, I can't really tell you, but uh, it's certainly worth having a look, particularly around the early part of December. So that's something that's been very nice to see, and there have been lots of very lovely photographs on the web. If you just try Google, you'll find many of them. Now, I mentioned that Mars is going to be something we should look at. It's at its best this month for about eight and a half years. So if you need an excuse to try and get a telescope to have a look at a planet and see some detail on the surface, then this is it. Mars and the Earth both have elliptical orbits, and Mars is particularly so. And this means that the distance between the Earth and Mars varies from what's called the apparition, that's when it's closest to us, from one apparition to the next. If Mars is closest to the Sun and the Earth is furthest from the Sun, then that means the separation will be least. This last happened in 2003, August the 27th, when it was as close, they think, as probably for about 60,000 years, although it was nearly as close in August 1766, August 1845, and August 1924. Now, the fact that all those were August is not a coincidence. That's when the Earth is furthest from the Sun. In fact, our winters are slightly less cold, as perhaps you'd have in the Southern Hemisphere, because we're nearest the Sun then, and our summers are perhaps slightly less hot, because we're furthest away. So the very closest approaches always happen around August, July, August. Now, of course, 
this is December, so that's not going to happen. And at the moment, it's not going to be all that close to us in comparison. So the angular size, where I was about 25 arc seconds back in 2003, is only going to be about 16 arc seconds. But there is some compensation. In 2003, it was relatively low in the sky, so the atmosphere hindered our view. But this time round, Mars is almost at the highest point of the ecliptic in the constellation of Gemini. And so, even though the angular size will be much smaller, we may actually get clearer images. And I'm hoping very much to, to photograph it in the next few weeks. So that's certainly something to look out for. You obviously cannot miss Mars if you look up and to the left of Orion. You find Gemini, and there is an interloper, a reddish salmon-pink interloper, which is the planet Mars. It's closest to us, by the way, on the night of the 18th, 19th of December. And around that time, it's going to be roughly due south at midnight. It's when it's opposite the sun. It's called opposition. Although, in fact, opposition happens a few days later. I think it's December the 24th. And that's because Mars has an elliptical orbit. A circular orbit, the nearest to the Earth, would actually happen on the day of opposition. It's not quite the case for Mars. Well, a couple more things just to finish up with. Uh, we do have a meteor shower this month. It's the Geminids. And it's best to look out around December the 14th after midnight. Now, that's actually not too bad this year because the, the, the moon, although it won't be new, will be relatively young, which means it will be setting by around midnight. So the, the sky in the east ought to be pretty good. And of course, Gemini is exactly where Mars is, so there may be some lovely photographs before long showing some meteors coming out of the radiant in Gemini and seeing Mars as well. Um, the meteors are actually quite slow-moving meteors, and whereas most meteors, we think, come from the tails of comets, the debris released as a comet goes around the sun, it's believed that the Gemini meteor shower comes from an asteroid it's called 3200 Pearson, and uh, so that's actually quite, quite surprising. Anyway, worthwhile, usually we see quite a reasonable number of meteors, so perhaps sometimes even one per minute, about 60 an hour. So it's well worth looking out for, but obviously wrap up well, it could be quite cold. Finally, one can still observe the two outer of our planets, Uranus and Neptune, in the hours after sunset. To find them, you really need a decent star chart. And what I would suggest is that if you look up the Night Sky page on the Jodrell Bank website, or just put Night Sky into Google, it should come up fairly near the top, then on that page you'll find star charts and information about everything I've talked about and some more detail about some of it. So it's a great month to observe the sky. I'll be out there every clear night, I promise you. I hope you enjoyed as much as I do. Thanks, Ian. And that, I'm afraid, brings this issue of the Jodcast to an end. But that's not it for 2007. Of course, we've got the December Extra Edition coming up halfway through the month. So thanks then to uh, Professor Carl Murray and Leonid Gervitz for doing our interviews, and to Ian Morrison and Megan for the Night Sky and the News. The intro outro this month starred the regular voices of the Jodcast with Mark Brizzy. So that's it from us. 
and we shall look forward to gracing your MP3 players again in the middle of the month. And until then, please do keep your feedback coming in on iTunes and emails via the web. Until then, goodbye. Bye. That was incredible. He does an excellent job. Perhaps he does deserve a pay rise after all. And now I must leave you. But there is one more visitor. Goodbye, Scrooge. This is quite fun, actually. Ah, you must be the ghost of astronomy future. What's going to happen? Will the stars burn out? Will the sun expand? Will man go to Mars? Will we ever make it to Jupiter? I'm sorry, Dave. I cannot let you do that. No! Ah! It was all just a dream. Just a dream. Is... is that you, Dr. Scrooge? Happy Christmas. Yes, and a very happy Christmas to you too, Rattenbury. I've had a change of heart. When you come in next, you will find something very special waiting for you. Oh yes? And what might that be? A pay rise? No, a new microphone. See you tomorrow morning.